Hi, I'm Jeremy Eckert. My wife Candace and I are the campus pastors at the Ridge Park Hill. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that this message connects with you, reveals God's word of truth in your life. Be encouraged, take courage, and enjoy. Desperation. Being in desperation but not in despair. So desperation is, is typically seen as a bad thing, right? Because the connotation is usually synonymous with a panicked, poor decision. Right? You get desperate and then you get stupid. Right? You, make, you make the wrong choices, you make bad deals, you give away way more than you'll ever have a return on your investment. And that, that could be true as buying a used car or entering in a relationship, whatever it is. If you're desperate, then you're probably going to make some bad choices. You're going to choose some destructive alliances because you're desperate. You're grasping for straws. The word is just an omen of impending destruction. A lot of times it's the way we hear it. It's like the last long shot, the final straw. Desperation usually includes an action, but with no convincing evidence that the action will yield a favorable result. It's the doorway to hopelessness. It's the way we hear the word. It's the last stop on the trip to accepting defeat. Typically, that's the way that we think of desperation. But desperation can also be a good thing because desperation absolutely will push you toward action. Sometimes when there's nothing left to do, you're backed into a corner, you come out fighting in a way that you win and you win big. Some of the most incredible moments in our history and even in our nation's history have happened when we have become desperate as a nation. In the Second World War, the United States was desperate. The Allies were desperate for long-range bombers that would be able to take the fight to German soil. So the B-24 Liberator was one of the solutions, the B-17, the B-24 Liberator. So, but we couldn't produce them fast enough. And then a plant opened by the Ford Motor Company in Willow Run, Michigan. And by a few months' time, they were producing a B-24 every 63 minutes. Ford Motor Company had figured out how to put the industrial might of Detroit into building the war machine. A bomber an hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and we took the fight to the enemy. Desperation made you do incredible things. The, so many stories from the Second World War. The P-51 Mustang was 141 days from the time the contract was signed to the time they flew the first prototype. Impossible. You do incredible things, not just as a nation, but as individuals. Desperation can make you survive things that you never thought you'd be able to survive. In 1971, there was a 17-year-old high school student named Julianne Kopacki. She was flying in uh, Lanza Flight 508. It was a, a domestic flight in Peru. About two miles above the rainforest, it was struck by lightning and had catastrophic structural damage. The airplane broke apart two miles over the rainforest. She was ejected from the aircraft along with everybody else. She fell two miles, strapped to her seat. Somewhere along the way, the, the, the seat rotated where she hit seat first, and the, and the canopy of the forest it slowed her deceleration to a survivable impact. She was incredibly broken, but not dead. She survived a two-mile fall. She found herself alone on the jungle floor, 
got out of her seat, incredibly wounded, found some of the snacks, the sweets that were uh, being served in the airplane when it broke apart. She gathered those up, and for 11 days, she walked down a river through the jungle. Broken bones, punctured, all kinds of stuff. On the 10th day, she finds a boat, and so she knows that if she could just stay there, some fisherman's going to come and find her, and, and she gets a gas can out of the boat, pours it on her wounds to get the maggots out. This is a true story. You should go home and Google it. This is an incredible story of survival because she had to. You fall out of an airplane, what are you going to do? You can lay there and die, or you can get up and move. The desperation makes you do incredible things. A story that most of us know, maybe not all of us know, is about Caleb and Matt. You guys maybe remember this. So, so Caleb, the worship leader, Matt, the guitar player with the super boss beard, right? So they were working on a car a few years ago. Matt's laying on the side underneath. They're taking a wheel off. The car falls off the jack onto Matt. Caleb, who's built like I am, reaches down and picks the car up off a mat and pulls him out. This is crazy. Crazy. Necessity is the mother of invention. Desperation can be the father of heroism. And desperation can make you do incredible things. So tonight I want to look at a story of a hopelessly outnumbered army, an impossible terrain, Deserting comrades and just two guys with one sword and some crazy faith. Elements that produced a miraculous victory. And tonight, guys, I honestly, I want to be challenged to become desperate to see God move in our generation. Just like these last two warriors were desperate to see God move in theirs. Because our desperation will make us courageous. And revival, or revolution, however you want to say it is born where courage meets faith. The context of this is, we're going to pick up reading here in just a moment in 1 Samuel chapter number 14. I could really read all of 13, 14, and some of 15, so I'll just kind of give you the cliffs notes for the, for the context of this. The Philistines were oppressing the Israelites under the leadership of King Saul. Small rebellions from Israel had led the Philistines to march against God's people and prepare to attack them. And Saul, the king of Israel, he was able to muster 3,000 soldiers. 3,000 soldiers. The Bible says that the Philistines had as many warriors as there were sand on the seashore. They were incredibly outnumbered. The Philistines had swords and spears and shields. They had 3,000 chariots. They had as many chariots as Israel had people. Meanwhile, Israel didn't even have swords. The Philistines were ex excellent in metalworks, but they had also figured out that if you take that skill out of Israel, that they wouldn't be able to produce weapons. So not only does this have a tiny, tiny little army of just 3,000 people against multitudes, but of those 3,000 people, there are only two swords in the whole army. One belongs to King Saul, the other one to his son, Jonathan. Facing an impossible situation, most of Israel's army deserted. And Saul was left with just 600 men. The battle lines were formed and the Philistines took the highlands. So they had the multitude of people, they had the weapon, and now they had the strategic advantage of the high ground. Everybody got desperate. 
And Saul, out of desperation, made a sacrifice that only Samuel the priest should have been able to make, and it was a sin, and it eventually cost him the dynasty. Jonathan, facing the same desperation, reacted a little bit differently. He, he leveraged the reality of his desperate situation to incite uncommon courage kind that only people with nothing to lose possess. And he and his armor bearer go out to pick a fight because he was convinced that God could do something incredible through him. We'll pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 14 beginning in verse 1. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. He didn't tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah. You know what? I, I can't read English and these words just kill me. Gibeah, I know. Right. Under a pomegranate tree in Migron, with him were about 600 men, among whom was Abijai, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother. Man, horrible. Ahibub. You know, if I just said it with confidence, you'd probably know the, never know the difference. I don't want to lie to you, though. Son of Phineas, son of Eli. I can handle that one. The Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware Jonathan had left. Now, those are some difficult names, and I stumbled through them, but what I want you to understand is that the guy that he had sitting in the ephod, the priestly clothes, was a descendant of Eli. We'll come back to that in just a little bit, perhaps. Next, verse 6. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost to the uncircumcised men, perhaps... The Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, as armor bearer said. Go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. So the two guys left with one sword between them, facing an army, and the best thing that they could muster up is perhaps God will do something. But the desperation of their situation came to them, and they concluded that either we sit here and we're attacked and we die, or we go and we fight and maybe we win. Perhaps the Lord will deliver us. Desperation made them take courage. Jonathan said, come on then. We'll cross over toward them and we'll let them see us. And if they say to us, wait here and we'll come down to you, we'll stay where we are and we'll not go out to them. But if they say, come up to us, we'll climb up. Because that's the sign the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up here and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into my hands or into the hands of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet. This is a steep hill. He's, got a, he's like bear crawling up this hill with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer followed and killed them. Now, they only have one sword between them. So, so, so the armor bearer is going to be picking up the, the remnants of the people that are left over. Or, or just I don't know. It, it's, it's crazy. They had two guys, one sword against the whole army. And they begin to turn the tide. Verse 14, in that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic. Struck the whole army, those in the camp and those in the field and those at the outposts and the raiding parties and, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Then Saul and all of his men assembled. And, I'm sorry, I'm going to skip down to verse 20. 
Then Saul and all of his men assembled and, and went to the battle, and they found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And, the, and all the Israel who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard the Philistines were on the run, and they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day the Lord saved Israel, and the battle moved beyond Beth-Avon. Desperation can be a powerful thing. And so the question tonight to us is, will we be desperate? Will we be desperate to see our friends come to Jesus? To see a generation that's lost have the gospel preached to them? Will we be desperate to see our families restored in the years that the enemy has stolen, given back to us? Will we truly be desperate to, to step out and to, to, to take that claim, to make that claim of the land that the Lord has already given us? Will we be desperate to see that the darkness is closing in around us and, and there's just not much time left? Will we be desperate? Will we be desperate for those in bondage to be set free by the blood of Jesus? Whether it's those that are locked in addiction of drugs or alcohol or pornography or whether it's us, even as we sit in here, they're locked in some of those same things and the struggle is inside of us. Will we be desperate to walk in freedom? Will we be desperate to see others walk in freedom? See, sometimes difficult problems have difficult solutions. And change is hard. There comes a point where desperation demands that change. And that is the essence of a revolution is when you get so tired of the way things are. When you're so far back in the corner, when you say, if I stay here, we're all going to die. If I don't preach the gospel, then they're going to be lost without Jesus. If I don't lay my hands on the sick, then they're going to die. When you're backed in that corner and desperation pushes you forward, that's the essence of a revolution when you just can't stay the same. So will we be desperate? As a generation of people who love Jesus, we also have to realize that we're in the minority. And will we be bothered by that? Not just bothered, but moved to change, moved in desperation. Will we hate what sin has done to our nation? Will we hate that the darkness tries to advance? When we get desperate, we see that there's no other way for freedom. For the people that we love, maybe even people we live with, maybe even the people that we see in the mirror. When we find ourselves or we find those that we love that are lost in addiction, do we understand that there's really no other way? That not only are we backed in a corner, but there's no other way to freedom except through Jesus. Except a, a mindset change, except allowing the Holy Spirit to be stronger in us than the flesh that tries to rule our minds and our bodies. Is there really no other way? This half-crazy attack, this plan of Jonathan that he had, just one sword. <laughs> this is insane. One sword, two people. They would have never tried that except they were desperate. And I wonder tonight how many solutions to the darkness around us, how many solutions that we have in our hearts, the power that we experience in these altars, the power to pray for the sick and see them recover, the, the power to preach the gospel and see lives change. These are solutions, and I wonder how many of these solutions we sit on the shelf because we're not desperate to share them. 
Will we be desperate? I honestly believe that a victory is waiting for us. We just got to be desperate enough to step out and fight for it. Secondly, how will we act in our desperation? See, the entire nation of Israel was desperate. They were all kind of backed in a corner. The Philistines were coming to overrun them, and they, they reacted very differently. There was basically three ways that everybody reacted. One, they all went and hid in caves. They ran away. And so far, this is kind of the way the American church is going. They want to go run in caves to look like the rest of the world, to blend in, to wear camouflage. We talk a lot in Sojourn, there's no such thing as a camouflage Christian. So if you're living camouflage Christianity, you're lukewarm at best. And so people were, were running away. They were, they were hiding in, in caves. They were defecting to the enemy. Saul started with, with 3,000 ended with 600 because they thought it was better to save themselves and live as fugitives and refugees than risk death for a nation. They would rather live as slaves than fight to live free. And this mentality is so strong in our culture because it's self-serving and it's easy. The other, the other way that I see people reacting in the story is we see old, old Saul, good old Saul, made some bad decisions. He got desperate. He was backed in a corner. But he also didn't see that one way. God gave him specific instructions. God kind of, I mean, there was a way that, that he could have made all this stuff work. But instead of waiting and listening and doing the right thing, he started grasping at straws and looked to the past and tried to repeat what was successful in other times. He had seen Samuel making the offering. And when Samuel didn't show up to make the offering on time, he decided to do it himself. And that was a sin because he wasn't qualified for it. And then we see him sitting around with, with, with this other guy who was wearing the ephod, who was the great, 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 great grandkid of Eli. Remember that? All those names I couldn't pronounce. It turns out that Eli was a priest way back in the day. And because of some crazy stuff between him and his kids and all that stuff, the priesthood was taken away from, from that bloodline. They were not allowed to be priests before God. But, but Saul looked around and said, hey, you know what, I've got my back up against the wall. I've got to do something. And uh, hey, you, come here. You're a priest. You sit down, figure this out. He, he reached back and he grabbed at something that was effective back in the day and just hoped, it, hoped for the best in his time. If we're not careful, we, the church, do the same thing. And instead of figuring out how to be true and relevant and, and active in our community now, we just look for, for solutions and things that we used to apply back then and try to move them back in the present. We do church the way that we did back when great-grandma was around, and it seems to work. We don't hear. This is awesome. I love our church. But the church of America is that way. The church of Europe died that way. I go to Paris a few times a year, and it's full of beautiful churches that are the same as they were in the 1600s. And because they never moved out of that, they became completely irrelevant, and the gospel isn't even preached anymore. They're set up as relics, and that's all it is. And if we're not careful... In our lives, we'll try to pull the same thing. We'll try to, to, to get some good luck charms and some things that worked from generations past. And 
Jesus specifically said that, that we're going to have the best of the old and the best of the new. And so I believe that whatever the desperation is in your life, don't just look for a pattern of what worked in the past. Look for God to do something fresh. If you need a healing in a relationship, don't just look for how God has healed other people's relationships, right? It, figure out how to make it work yourself. If you need a miracle in your finances, then get all the education you can. Put, put your best effort, your best mind, pen and paper, try to figure it out. But you know what? Don't just copy what you've seen somebody else do. Figure out what God would have you do. And see if you can make it work. Be desperate. Be desperate to do the right thing because these guys, three ways they reacted, they could flee, they could grasp at straws, or these guys, they did something with what God gave them. And it wasn't big. Two guys, one sword. Two guys, one sword. Desperation can birth stupidity or courage, and sometimes only God can forecast the difference. Two guys, one sword. They did something with what they had. The difference between the way Saul acted and Jonathan acted is Saul acted in his own strength with no revelation. And Jonathan gave what he had to God and let courage meet faith. Guys, as we're desperate, as we're desperate to see God move in our situation, as we're desperate to see God deliver us, as we're desperate to see God make a path for revival just one more time before Jesus comes back, just one more time to shake this earth, just one more time to reach a generation. If we're truly desperate for those things, it may take, it may take us Using what we have, as small as it is, and saying, you know what? Perhaps, perhaps this will work. Perhaps God will give us the victory. Just maybe, just maybe. Because we believe that God has the ability to change a situation, and to bring a victory, whether it's by a lot of people or a few people. How desperate can we get? Last but not least, why not? Why not? This is a free body diagram if you're interested in what that is. I had to do that a lot back in high school physics. Basically, it's the, it's the first, uh, first law, um, Newton's first law, first law of motion, also known as the, um, the law of inertia. Right. And it just says that a body at rest will stay at rest until it's acted upon by a force. You guys know this, right? Body in motion will stay in motion unless it's acted on by a force. Okay. Inertia. It means that things don't want to change. It means that, that when you're stuck, you're stuck until you're pushed out of being stuck. It means that that we won't move as individuals, as a church, as a generation of believers. We will not move until the pain of staying the way we are eclipses the pain, the cost of making a change. It means until the force that's pushing us to move overcomes the force that's keeping us stuck, we're never going to move. And so, again, are we desperate? And if you sit here and you say, yes, 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 
Yes, I am desperate for my marriage. Yes, I am desperate for my friends to know Jesus. Yes, I am desperate to see myself blessed in my finances. But you're not desperate enough to be pushed out of what you're doing to do something different, to grab that one sword and say, you know what, perhaps. Then you're still going to be stuck. If you say, I am desperate to be blessed financially, but you're not going to grab that that sword and pay your tithe, then you're still going to be stuck. If you say, I am desperate to see my friends saved, but you're not going to pull out that one sword and mention the name of Jesus and talk about the hope that you have, then you're still going to be stuck. If you're surrounded by people that are locked in addiction, But you're not going to tell them about God. You're not going to lay hands on them and and ask the Holy Spirit to help them. You're not going to call them and keep them accountable. Then you're still stuck. And you're not desperate enough to make a change. And the pain that we feel at being stuck is not enough. We've got to have a fresh revelation of reality because I think, honestly, if we could take off our blinders and we could look around the halls of our schools, if we could look uh, down the cubicle next to you, And you can really see what people are facing, what they're going through, what's holding them down, and what their eternity holds. And I think not only would we be backed in a corner, but we'd also understand that there's just one way, there's just one hope. And we'd be desperate enough to fight. And maybe the Lord will give us victory. But it's not beyond Him. Whether by few, whether by many, whatever. God's going to do something amazing. And now you say, Pastor Jeremy, you know what? I want to be so desperate. I want to be so messed up by the reality of this world. I want to be so messed up by where I know my friends are going. I want to be so messed up with this addiction that cannot stay in my house anymore that I get a little bit desperate. I get a little bit desperate and I begin to do courageous things. I begin to to step out in faith and preach the gospel, use the name of Jesus, talk about sin and forgiveness. I want to be so desperate, so messed up, that I put things out of my house. I get rid of parts of my life, even the convenient things. I've got to cut those things away. I want to be so desperate that I do those things. Holy Spirit, will you mess with me? If that's you, lift up your hands and just receive this right now. Holy Ghost... We've all got something. You've called us to a ministry. You've called us, at the very least, to reconcile this world to you. And that's a huge job. And so tonight, Father God, these people, we as a church body, we're giving you permission to mess with us. Holy Spirit, make us desperate. Make us desperate for souls. Make us desperate for righteousness. Would you help us in our homes And our families, would you help us to be desperate to to serve one another and to serve you in righteousness and holiness? Would we be able to put your priorities above our priorities and to separate ourselves to you? When you give us an opportunity to minister the gospel, would you give us the boldness by the Holy Ghost to step out in faith? And even if it's just us standing in our office building or in our classroom, even if it's just us, us against everyone, you turn the hearts of the people that we influence back to you God because we believe God that that whether by many or by few that this gospel will be preached and that revival will shine through
We love you and we bless you, Jesus. God, I pray a blessing over these people that you bless us and keep us, that you make your face to shine on us, that you give us favor with you, with mankind, that you keep us safe. Bring us back on Sunday and next Wednesday night in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We invite you to be part of our online community. By subscribing to this podcast, you'll receive the latest episodes in your inbox. We will begin meeting as a physical campus in early 2020. If you live in the central Arkansas area and would like to be part of our launch team, please visit us online by clicking the link in the description below. You're also more than invited to attend our main campus at 8013 Jacksonville Cato Road in Sherwood, Arkansas with lead pastors Kenny and Krista McBessel. We'll see you soon. Thank you.